Good evening, and welcome to the July 2020 edition of Outbeat News In-Depth. I'm Greg Morelia. Well, last month, the United States Supreme Court issued a landmark ruling in the case of Bostock versus Clayton County by a vote of six to three and said the definition of sex in the 1965 Civil Rights Act includes sexual orientation and gender identity. This decision protects some 8 million LGBTQ workers around the United States. But the fight for employment protection didn't start with the Bostock case. In fact, it began more than six decades ago, when some 5,000 gay people were purged by the federal government during what we now call the Lavender Scare. Frank Kameny was one of those men, but he was the only one who stood up and took on the federal government in court. A new book's been written about his life titled A Deviant's War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America. The author and LGBT historian Dr. Eric Cervini is with us tonight to talk in depth about this story and how it led to last month's Supreme Court decision. But before we get to the show, let me tell you about the KRCB Summer Fundraiser. It's underway right now, and I hope you'll take a moment to support Outbeat Radio. KRCB Radio 91 is your public radio station, and we depend on donations from listeners just like you to keep subscriptions free and advertising-free radio coming to you every single day. So join me and your neighbors by making a donation tonight, online. It's easy, I promise. Just go to norcalpublicmedia.org forward slash donate. And if you missed that website, there's a link on our website right on the front page at outbeatnews.com. Thanks. Now, stay tuned. Here's your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, July 26th, 2020. This is Greg Morali with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of July 26th, 2020. Well, the prospects for marriage equality and other LGBTQ plus rights in Russia have been severely dimmed as lawmakers there made good on President Vladimir Putin's promised crackdown on the queer and trans community. An author of legislation proposed last week says her bill will ban same-sex marriage, adoption by transgender people, and recognition of same-sex unions registered abroad. Same-sex unions are not recognized in Russia, but a loophole currently exists in the country's family code that's been used in the past to grant official recognition to same-sex unions registered out of the country. The legislation proposed this last Tuesday will close that loophole. And here in the U.S., the state of Maine started issuing birth certificates with non-binary gender markers this last week. Starting July 14th, on International Non-Binary People's Day, people in Maine can now get a birth certificate issued with an X instead of an M or F as their gender. According to information from the governor's office, adults and emancipated minors can apply for a non-binary gender marker on their birth certificate by submitting an application and an individual notarized affirmation that the change is made to align the record with their gender identity. Parents can fill out a form for their minor children if they submit a declaration of a licensed physician or mental health care provider who affirms that the requested gender is consistent with the minor's gender identity. And parents can also choose the non-binary option on their child's birth certificate at birth and update it later if needed. Several other states, including New York, California, and Colorado, also a law for non-binary gender markers on birth certificates. And according to a new national survey by the Trevor Project, about 40% of LGBTQ youth have considered suicide this last year. The information was gathered between December 2nd, 2019 and March 31st, 2020, which means most respondents answered before they were faced with the even tougher circumstances of the coronavirus pandemic. The National Survey on LGBTQ Youth Mental Health gathered data from 40,000 respondents, teens and young adults between the ages of 13 and 24, who identify as gay or lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer, and gender non-binary. This year's findings of 40% is up slightly from 39% of the same demographic last year. 86% of youth said that the current political climate has impacted their well-being negatively. 33% reported that they have been physically threatened or harmed due to their LGBTQ identity. And here in the Bay Area, the world's largest running and largest showcase of queer cinema announced that the Frameline 44 Film Festival, previously postponed due to the coronavirus pandemic, will be held virtually online September 17th through the 27th of 2020. The lineup will include 30 features and six short programs showcasing the best new queer films from around the world. 
The full schedule of online screenings and special events at outdoor drive-in theaters will be announced on Tuesday, August 25th, with tickets available the next day. You can learn more at frameline.org. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. Dr. Eric Cervini is an award-winning historian of LGBTQ plus politics and culture. He graduated summa cum laude from Harvard College and received his PhD in history from the University of Cambridge, where he was a Gates scholar. As an authority on 1960s gay activism, Dr. Cervini serves on the board of directors at the Harvard Gender and Sexuality Caucus and on the board of the advisors of the Mattachine Society of Washington, D.C., his new book is called The Deviant's War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's a delight to have you and to talk about this exciting book. And, you know, there's been so much going on uh, just this month around much of what this story really tells us about. But before we get into the book, uh, talk about your own personal journey a little bit and what brought you to write. Sure. Well, I'm originally from a town called Round Rock, Texas, right outside of Austin, and grew up uh, in Central Texas, uh, completely closeted throughout high school, uh, had no idea that to be a happy, gay, young person was even possible, uh, but fortunately had a very supportive mother uh, who made very clear that she would accept me no matter what, and uh, somehow figured it all out before going to college. And shortly thereafter, uh, when I was an undergraduate, uh, happened to watch the film Milk, about mm -hmm. Harvey Milk, and was just absolutely shocked that as someone who loved history, and specifically American history, uh, and thought I knew a lot of it, just from my own studies and from, from high school, I was shocked that I didn't know his story. And it got me to wondering, what other stories have I not been taught? And soon after that, as I started researching other uh, historical figures who may have not gotten their due, I stumbled across the name of Frank Kameny. And historians have, have long regarded him as the grandfather of the gay rights movement, but he had never had a book written about it. And uh, so soon after learning his name, I was taking a, a research seminar uh, and so I bust down to Washington, D.C. and entered the manuscripts room of the Library of Congress and started going through his personal papers, hundreds of thousands of documents, and realized that I was staring at the secret history of gay rights in America. And that was seven years ago, uh, a few degrees later, and uh, nonstop obsession with telling his story. Uh, finally, uh, there is a book uh, that tells at least a part of, of his story. And I'm so excited to introduce the world to Frank. Well, and it's not just some brief pamphlet either. I mean, it's quite a volume. <laughs> it's quite a volume. And it, it, have you always been passionate about writing? Yes. And I, I never imagined that I, the first thing I would do in my life would, would be to write a book. I always thought, you know, I would uh, maybe go to law school and practice law or get into politics or something like that. And then maybe someday write a book. Uh, but this realization that, you know, history, a lot of people think, and I certainly thought coming into college and when I first started studying history, that it's just all the history is out there, that we know it all. We just need to memorize the facts. Right. And, you know, as long as you, you, you memorize these dates and these facts, then you're fine. But when you realize that the study of history is actually discovering new knowledge, discovering new stories uh, and making new connections in stories that already exist, uh, you realize that history is never complete. And I think it was that realization that there was a gap existing in not just our education, but in history itself and what uh, even professional scholars have have identified as being important. Uh, I at any point, even whether it was writing my senior thesis or my master's thesis or even my PhD, when I had to decide, OK, do I stop and maybe go get a real job? Or do I keep going and try to turn this into something larger that right. I can share with the world? I always opted for the latter option uh, to the chagrin of my, you know, my mother and uh, my loved ones who, who uh, had to live with the writer 
uh, sadly for them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, having, having written, I understand that. And, and I share the sympathy, um, because it's quite a process, but, but, but it's a gift. It's, it's, it's a gift that will add to the growing, um, resources of LGBT history that are out there. Uh, some time ago we had Josh Howard. I don't know if you've ever run into him, uh, who produced a documentary called the lavender scare. We had him on the show talking about really, a part of history that uh, I don't ever remember reading about in high school and college history books. I mean, certainly I remember McCarthy and the Red Scare, but nothing about the Lavender Scare. Uh, right. So so let's start there. Uh, for our listeners who don't know about the 1950s and how hostile it was for LGBT folks, set the stage for us. Give us a sense of what the environment was like and where Frank kind of comes into the picture here. Sure, and I'm so glad you brought up the documentary, which is actually based on uh, the seminal book on the topic called The Lavender Scare by David K. Johnson, uh, which was actually the first book I ever read on the subject that actually has a whole chapter on Frank Kameny. So uh, David really laid the groundwork for a lot of uh, uh, future histories, including my own. And yeah, for people who don't know, a lot of uh, people who have studied history or even just gone to school know the name Joseph McCarthy and understand, like you said, the Red Scare and the systematic persecution of alleged communists or security risks in the government that took place in the 1950s. And what people don't realize is that at the exact same time, uh, McCarthy and his allies within the Republican Party were also targeting suspected homosexuals with the reasoning being that if you were gay, if you were sexually deviant, then that meant you were automatically susceptible to blackmail by communist agents because they could presumably find out about your sexual orientation, threaten to expose you to your employer or to your family, and then get classified secrets in return. And so with that justification, the federal government uh, enacted uh, beginning really in the Truman administration uh, with the Republican Party, including McCarthy, using this idea, just like they used the Red Scare, of homosexuals being an internal threat within the government as a tool to delegitimize the Truman administration. And so beginning in the 50s, uh, the, the numbers are astounding. Uh, every single year, a thousand federal employees at minimum were dismissed from their jobs for being gay uh, each and every year. And that continued for 25 years. It happened at a rate far exceeding uh, uh, ideological security risks like communists. And on that was on the federal level. And then at the local level, police departments across the country were also targeting uh, alleged sexual deviants. They would have vice squads in every major city who would stake out public restrooms, uh, with the sole intention of catching suspected homosexuals and then labeling them, marking them as sexually deviant for the rest of their lives. Right. Uh, their names would show up on the local papers, uh, and the numbers are equally astounding. A million Americans were arrested for homosexual activity, ranging from holding hands to sodomy, in the 15 years after uh, World War II. So that's at the rate of one every 10 minutes. And that really created a second-class citizenry because just like being fired from your job, that would follow you for the rest of your life. Private employers, you know, if they ran a background check uh, or they did any research whatsoever, uh, then they would find out that you were a pervert, you were a queer, and you would have no place uh, in employment or in civil society. It's just crazy the amount of fear that, that existed at that time. It, it was actually easier and less of a threat to be openly gay in the early part of the 20th century than it was in, in this decade. Um, and, and, and I've always found what's interesting is, is this really comes on the heels of Alfred Kinsey's work, which was a scientific look, right, at, at sexual orientation and, and his idea that there's a spectrum out there. And he showed a lot of evidence that there were a lot of men who were not straight. But how do you think his work in that book fueled the fear well, very similar to the communist threat, right? Where you have, you know, these tangible pieces of evidence, at least in the minds of, of these uh, Republican politicians, things like uh, the Soviet Union acquiring the bomb 
or the fall of China to the communists. These were things that they could point to saying, you know, clearly there is infiltration within our government by communists. Well, the Kinsey report offered something equally tangible. It offered proof, at least, you know, scientifically based research that suggested that, you know, something like 10% of Americans were uh, exclusively engaging in, in homosexual activity. On top of that, uh, it showed that sexual perversion of all types was widespread. Uh, so Kinsey estimated that 95% of Americans broke some sort of sexual law. So it did two things. First, it told you know the conservatives within the government, the, people like McCarthy and his allies, that there was a threat, this was a minority, and it was also an opportunity to find a new scapegoat to delegitimize uh, the, the Truman administration. But then it also told the sexual deviants themselves that they existed, that there was a large uh, uh, population of people just like them who existed in the country and they were everywhere. And you see people like Harry Hay here in Los Angeles uh, pointing to the Kinsey report saying, hey, wait a second. We, if there are so many of us, why aren't we binding together? Mm -hmm. Why aren't we organizing? Why aren't we calling ourselves a minority group? So I don't think it's a coincidence that the very first national gay rights organization, the Mattachine Society, was founded only two years after the Kinsey report. Uh, and there's been some great studies on, on that relationship. Yeah. And, and you, you know, you use the word and in, in, in history refers to the words as deviants and perverts that have very different meaning then than it does now. Uh, and you referenced that when you talked about laws that prohibited just two men from holding hands in public together, that they would be considered deviants and perverts. So the, the, the whole understanding about what it is and what it means to be perverted has changed dramatically. Um, and it took 25 years for the American Psychological Association to come around. Suddenly, one afternoon, it seems, they voted. Uh, why did it take so long for us to finally realize that this is not a mental disorder? It's a great question. And a lot of people forget about that side of things because, you know, the government usually would, when they fired someone for being gay, they would say, well, you're inherently immoral. You disrupt the workplace. Uh, that's why we're firing you. Oh, and also you're open to, to blackmail. But then once people like Frank Kameny fought back, he was the first to really say, that makes no sense. A, because I'm claiming that to be gay is a moral good. And B, I'm openly gay. So how could I be susceptible to blackmail? Well, then the government would rely on uh, the, the medical theory of saying, well, OK, maybe you're not susceptible to blackmail, but you're sick. You are mentally ill and therefore you have no place in, in the government. And so organizations like the American Psychiatric Association, they were the ones who were legitimizing the purges, the gay purges throughout the 50s and 60s and beyond. And that's why uh, activists like Frank Kameny, like Barbara Giddings, identified the APA as such an essential target to say the, the real sick people in our country are not sexual deviants. They're not homosexuals. It's the people who are carrying out the persecution and the people mm -hmm. who are actually prejudiced. And so one you know, of the big shifts that you see, especially in the, the early 1970s, is instead of homosexuals being sick, it's the bigots that are sick. And that's why we call it homophobia. That's a very recent invention by activists to shift the, the medicalization and the uh, pathology from sexual deviance indifference to uh, bigotry. Yeah, I, I, I like the way you describe that is that shift. And, and it is it is a sickness to be a bigot. Truly. Uh, you know, the FBI obviously played a big role in this tracking down what a thousand people a year you were talking about. Um, and there's been a lot of rumors about J. Edgar Hoover himself uh, as a yes. leader. He who does protest too much, I guess. Talk about <laughs> talk about the role of the FBI in what you discovered uh, during those years. Well, when anyone asks me what's the most surprising thing I, I discovered in my research, I would have to say it was the FBI file. 
And the, the organization that Frank Kamney started after he got fired from his job was called the Mattachine Society of Washington. It was really the first homosexual lobby sitting down with congressmen, filing lawsuits uh, for the rights of gay federal employees. His organization was very small. It had a maximum of 40 or so members in the 1960s. But the FBI, after learning about this very small fledgling, fledgling group of homosexuals, created a 1,000-page FBI file on these activists. Mm. And J. Edgar Hoover's handwriting is literally all over the file with his handwriting saying, you know, I want you, in my words, to infiltrate the, this homosexual organization. I want you to intimidate them, and I want you to destroy them. And you see the extent to which the federal government, and specifically J. Edgar Hoover and his apparatus of surveillance and persecution and blackmail, uh, the extent that they went to destroy these activists and to ensure that homosexuals had no place in the American government in Washington, D.C., or in society as a whole. So when you talk about the FBI's use of blackmail, uh, how, how was that carried out? Give us sort of a typical scenario. An employee is discovered, and then what happens? Well, so the thing to remember is that Hoover had been in power since the 30s, right? He served, I believe it was seven presidents. Uh, so, you know, presidents would, would rise and fall. J. Edgar Hoover stayed in power. Right. And one of the ways that he did that was he recognized that when you find dirt on a, a federal employee, say you find, you know, you find out that a federal official, someone high up in the State Department or in the White House was gay. You, you learn from you maybe a, a, an arrest in a public restroom or you hear a rumor. Rather than firing that federal employee, what Hoover would do is bring them in or have agents go to their office and say, and I found evidence of this, I found the transcripts, and say, you can keep your job, but in return, you need to now be a listening post, as they called themselves, uh, to then funnel information about other homosexuals in the government uh, to us. And so in that way, the, the FBI became a massive apparatus of blackmail and also a clearinghouse of persecution because with all of these you know spies essentially throughout the federal government hoover was able not only just to to carry out the lavender scare and the gay purges but also to use it to his own advantage to maintain his power because then the question we have congressmen on record talking to the the uh, the washington post saying we are never going to touch Jagger Hoover or try to get him out of power because we're too scared of the information that he has on us. And so it also shows, you know, long before the idea of a deep state, you know, part of the most anti-democratic uh, uh, aspect of our uh, country and our history was actually the FBI. And so it shows, you know, it's, it's a lot more complex when you're talking about autocracy and tyranny. It doesn't have to just be the president. It can also be other members uh, of, of our government and, and unelected officials as well uh, who can be carrying out uh, uh, tyranny as well. Wow. It's, it's actually frightening to think about. Uh, and you got a chance to look at a lot of documents related to Kinsey and, and Frank Kameny and Harry Hay and the others that you mentioned you know, what were some of the things that you found in these in these secret files that are not secret anymore, right? Right. right. Well, Hoover, one thing that I avoid talking about is his sexuality itself, because there have been books and books and books and books on it. And so if people want to find out and, and weigh the evidence for themselves about whether he may have been gay himself. They can read those. But what I think is much more telling is how obsessed he was with guarding his own image mm -hmm. and trying to rebuke the rumors of his sexuality because we talk about it now but they were also talking about it in going all the way back to the 30s they were calling him effeminate and swishing um well into the 60s there were rumors about him and tolson and his bachelorhood and living with his mom and so he was aware of these rumors and so you see how 
which you can see echoes of it today, how someone's personal uh, uh, insecurities right. can result in really tangible, uh, horrifying instances of, of oppression and persecution that become systemic, right? Because he had these insecurities, regardless of whether they were, you know, they were rooted in his, his sexuality, it resulted in an absolutely terrifying facet of our history that I think shows us we need to be vigilant today. Uh, and that, you know, these people in power, once they have power, they are not necessarily acting um, rationally. They are acting out of, uh, of, of fear and of, of personal based uh, uh, concerns. And, and yeah, and, and they invested a lot of taxpayer funded government resources in following people and tracking people and recording people. I mean, we're not talking about just some review or some commentary about the threat that Kinsey's work posed to society. They were, they were following him and tracking sure. him, right? Spying sure. on him. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you see it all for all these, you know, thinkers and activists, whether it's Martin Luther King to Harry Hay to Frank Kameny, you know, J. Edgar Hoover saw these individuals as threats to not just his own authority, but the way the world should be in a world that, you know, looked to him as a pinnacle of morality. And so when you have individuals like Alfred Kinsey saying, actually, people aren't really walking the talk. Everyone's a hypocrite. These sexual laws prohibiting fornication and adultery and homosexuality are nonsensical. Well, without those laws and without the ability to blackmail people based on those laws, Hoover wouldn't have power. Right. And so that I think you have to look at it through that lens, because otherwise, if you think of it rationally, then you miss such a big part Absolutely. of how regimes like his and like the current regime uh, can come to yeah. be. Yeah. Well, we could spend a whole couple of hours talking about the current <laughs> regimes, couldn't we? Uh, yes, let's let's yes. get back to Kameny for a second. I mean, of, of all the thousands of people who were fired and simply disappeared and walked away, he decided to stand up. What did you learn about him that you think gave him the courage and the, the fortitude to take on the federal government? Well, I always like to start my, my introduction of Frank Kameny in saying that he did not want to be the grandfather of the gay rights movement. He did not want to be an activist. All he wanted growing up as a six-year-old in the 1930s in Queens, New York, all he wanted was to be an astronomer. He wanted to study the stars. He wanted to study outer space. And when you realize how much effort and energy he put into his studies, he spent after going to, uh, to war on the front lines in World War II, he got his PhD in astronomy at Harvard, graduated in 1956, months before the launch of Sputnik, uh, the Soviet Union's satellite that really launched the space race. So you could not have picked a better profession or a better time to be an astronomer mm -hmm. in a time when the federal government, the entire world was flocking uh, to scientists to try to figure out, all right, how do we beat the Soviets? How do we gain superiority in space? But then within months of him starting to work for the federal government, working for uh, the Defense Department, the, the government found out he was gay. And he has to undergo a series of uh, interrogations that are humiliating, asking very intimate details about his sex life, and is very promptly fired, despite his denials, uh, and is never allowed to work in neither the federal government nor the, the field of astronomy ever again, because if you wanted to work in aerospace, you needed a security clearance. And so I think it was this obsession and love for his own career, which was then taken away from him. Mm -hmm. um, and also a lot of the privilege that he grew up with in being able to go to Harvard, being a white guy, being passing as a, as a straight man, um, that told him he should have, he was entitled to uh, uh, being successful and being able to serve his country mm -hmm. uh, and also going to war and, and 
shooting at Germans and almost being killed by mortar fire also told him he was entitled to the right to serve his country. And so when the government threw him out and said, we don't ever want anything to do with you, even though he was equipped to build NASA two years later with Warner von Braun, they said, we don't want anything to do with you. And he became the first to fight back, um, suing the government. He became the first to file a Supreme Court petition for the rights of gay federal employees in 1961, which is almost exactly 60 years before this recent last month's uh, Supreme Court decision involving uh, uh, anti-discrimination of private employees who are gay or trans or queer. Uh, so really that is the culmination of a battle that began uh, 60 years ago, uh, a battle initiated by Frank Kameny. Yeah, I, I took pause that day that that Supreme Court case came out and wondered what he would be thinking uh, about that vote, especially about the justices who voted to support what would be his position in a, at this particular point. Uh, but right. we won't ever know that, unfortunately. You know, I, I've always found it fascinating that Washington, D.C. has been a place, a hub for uh, gay people to work, to live, um, and even in a time when uh, there was such animus towards gay people, D.C. was was booming. There were lots of places. And, of course, you had to do it all very sub subvertly and covertly. Talk about some of the spots that were popular for <laughs> men to cruise. Pretty close to the uh, White House, yeah? Yes, yes, absolutely. And there's been some great research for people. We talked about um, uh, David Johnson's The Lavender Scare. That book actually gives a great survey of, of the factors that contributed to Washington, D.C. becoming a very gay city because, you know, just like Hollywood, the federal government uh, attracted a lot of young single men, uh, especially in during uh, uh, the New Deal and World War II, a huge explosion in, in simply just young gay men being around and being a part of uh, the federal government, and they created spaces for themselves. And so, as you mentioned, uh, the uh, several public spaces, uh, ironically, were some of the only places you could actually get some privacy. And so, you know, if you were living with several roommates, you had landlords watching, then, you know, in, in bars, uh, you know, yes, there were gay bars, but they were often raided. Um, they may have been filled with, with uh, federal investigators who were trying to determine whether you may be working for the federal government. Uh, police officers were there, the vice squad was there. So uh, often the only place you could go were public spaces like parks, like Lafayette Park, right outside of the White House, literally across the street, the public restrooms there. Um, just a couple blocks down, you have the YMCA, uh, where a, a, a very infamous scandal took place only weeks before the 1964 election that I discuss in my book. Um, places like DuPont Circle uh, that were really claimed by the queer community and were spaces where you could go and, and be yourself and find someone just like yourself. Um, and, you know, of course, there were bars. There were these gay bars, places like the Chicken Hut, which was a piano bar um, that were actually restaurants during the day. Uh, and you could go to these spaces and be yourself. But as you mentioned, it, they were also fearful places because you had to grapple with the fact, yes, I'm, I'm going to go socialize and be myself. But there's a chance that we could be raided, right. that I could be arrested. And you see instances of that happening over and over and over again. Yeah. Lafayette Park. Wow. Right across from the White House. Who would have yes. ever thought? <laughs> if you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News in Depth here on KRCB-FM Radio 91. I'm Greg Moralia, and we are in the midst of our summer fundraiser here on Radio 91. We'd like you to be part of it. So go to OutbeatNews.com and click the link on the center of the page to make your donation online right now. We're talking with Dr. Eric Cervini. He's the author of A Deviance War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America. Uh, you talk about some women that made some pretty important contributions, and they're, I think they're often left out of the, the forefront of the gay rights movement. Who are some of your heroes? Oh, so many. Well, I always say you can't tell the story of gay rights in America without also telling 
the story of women's liberation and also the story of the black freedom movement. Mm -hmm. And I think someone who falls at the, the intersection of those two uh, uh, movements and categories was uh, a woman named Ernestine Eppinger that, you know, she hasn't really had her due, I don't believe, in, in past histories. And I was so excited to, to learn more about her and include her in my book. She was the first black woman to ever protest for gay rights. Uh, four years before Stonewall, she was marching outside the White House uh, against the gay purges. And, you know, as a black woman, she had to, at the time, unfortunately, make the decision of where she directed her energies because there weren't uh, black lesbian organizations yet. She had to choose between the black freedom movement or the uh, women's liberation movement or the homophile movement. So she was one of the few people who made an effort within the homophile movement to shake them by the shoulders and say, hey, all these other movements are making these great strides, are fighting back, are demanding change and demonstrating why aren't we doing it? But the, the, the homophile movement, as it was called, the pre-Stonewall gay rights movement, was really terrified. It was so scared of marching and of demanding rights and demanding change that and on top of that, it was male dominated and it was overwhelmingly white. And so they didn't listen to people like uh, Ernestine. And so she eventually was functionally, you know, uh, uh, pushed out of the movement because she just her voice was not being heard. I think she's someone who I'm so grateful that I was able to learn about, but also figures like Barbara Giddings. Kay Tobin Lehusen, uh, people like Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon in the, in the Daughters of Boletus, the lesbian organization, which very similarly had unique concerns specific to being lesbians, being women and homosexuals in the 1960s, concerns that had nothing to do with the right to have sex in a public restroom, which is right. what a lot of, you know, uh, uh, gay men were fighting against, which, you know, yes, that is persecution, being arrested and labeled as a homosexual for the rest of your life. But it was something that gay women had, didn't have to deal with. They had their own concerns, often involving motherhood uh, or involving sex-based discrimination. Uh, so you see figures within the movement like Del Martin going all the way back to 1959 saying, hey, white men of the Mattachine, you may someday get your rights, but at the end of the day, we're still going to be women. We're still going to be left behind. So you need to start thinking about how you can be helping lesbians as both women and as homosexuals. And her speech and the speeches of so many other uh, uh, lesbian activists, I think we should be reading them and studying them today uh, to understand how we failed in the past, especially as, as cis white gay men, uh, and how we can do better in the future. Yeah, agreed. And I'm always proud to say that Phyllis and Dell were Bay Area San Francisco folks uh, and, and started that organization that's that's been so important. Um, and one of the first important civil rights gains uh, that the Supreme Court stepped in with uh, involved publication. Talk about the importance of, of publication, or, or I guess a better way to ask the question is, um, talk about that case, the One Magazine case, and why that was such an important gain for us at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm in Los Angeles, which is the home of, of the One Archives. And for people who don't know uh, One Magazine, it was uh, one of the very first uh, gay publications. It was really an outgrowth of uh, uh, the Mattachine Society and was really the very, very first uh, organization to take gay rights at all to the Supreme Court. And so the One v. Olson case was, you know, as obscenity laws were, were crumbling in the 1950s, one magazine was the one that said, you know, the, the post office or the postmaster has no right to take our legitimate magazines, which serve a legitimate social purpose um, that are not explicit, that are not prurient, um, that we have a right to be mailing these and they should not be seized by the government. And so the Supreme Court uh, without any any uh, explanation for its decision, uh, said, all right, yeah, you're right. And that really opened the floodgates. And very soon thereafter, um, uh, with Manual Enterprises case in the early 60s, um, uh, obscenity statues continued to fall and soon gay pornography 
uh, became uh, allowed, became permitted. And, you know, I, the one case in particular, because gay publications were allowed to be mailed, um, it allowed the movement itself, especially in the decade before Stonewall, uh, to exist and to exchange ideas and to see what was working and what wasn't, and also to build that ideology of pride, which had been really, there had been pockets of people declaring their pride, people like uh, uh, Chuck Rowland in, in Los Angeles, uh, declaring in, in 53, saying someday we will walk down Hollywood Boulevard saying that we're proud to be gay, uh, but that day is not yet. And then that spirit went away uh, until the 1960s, until people like Frank Kameny started saying, hey, we have to declare our pride in being gay because otherwise the government will tell us that we're immoral, uh, that we are a threat to society. So we have to, as a legal strategy, declare that we are morally good, that we contributed positively to society. And that idea, that strategy grew into the psychological antidote of all of the oppression and the feelings of inferiority that were keeping people from joining the gay community, from fighting back. Um, and so that evolution really was, it was made possible by that Supreme Court case. And it's quite frankly, why we celebrate pride each June. Um, so all of these pioneers who were the first to, to fight on, in the legal realm, uh, we, we have to be telling their stories. Oh, for sure. And, and I think it's kind of hard to imagine the significance and importance of that decision today when information is so accessible through so many different ways. But, but it wasn't then. You know, there was not uh, the television network that we have today. There is, of course, not the Internet. There, there was really no way other than through the mail to be able to share ideas beyond, you know, a, a meeting in your living room. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and certainly no way to organize. The 60s were kind of a crazy time. And, you know, of course, last month we just got done celebrating the anniversary of Stonewall. And, and many people always point to Stonewall and say, well, that was the start. But, of course, it wasn't. There were a lot of things that led up to Stonewall, a lot of riots and similar kinds of, of pushback. Why Stonewall then? Why that particular night in that particular bar? Well, I think you, you see the importance of Stonewall just this past month, where when people ask, why was it Stonewall that, that galvanized the movement, that created this, this explosion in scale of a pre-existing movement for gay rights? Well, I think you have to look no further than the media coverage just this past month of uh, uh, Black Lives Matter. When was there the most media coverage? Well, it was when the resistance was violent, right? Resistance against police oppression. Uh, when you see these police officers behaving violently against peaceful demonstrators, that is when, uh, or when, you know, people were in the streets uh, resisting via the destruction of property, that was covered. That, was, that sent a message to the whole country that this was something uh, that transcended just a, a tweet or a post or a hashtag. Um, it was people putting their bodies on the line. Mm -hmm. And I think that visualization of people uh, putting their own safety at risk in the name of movement, um, that is why it created such a, a force this past month. And that is why it created such a force uh, in a movement after Stonewall, because you had two village voice reporters there who were, you know, chronicling everything that happened. You had the New York Times reporting on it. You had all of this media. So, yes, you're right. There were uh, uh, acts of rebellion beforehand. There were uh, uh, activists who were who were fighting people like Frank Kameny and Barbara Giddings and Ernestine Eppinger. Um, but for the first time, the media was there. It covered uh, violence and the riots themselves. And that's what sent a message to everyone else who had previously been act, uh, activists in women's liberation or the anti-war movement said, hey, at last, uh, sexual deviants are, are ready to fight back. Yeah. Well, and you talked about uh, women and the role that they played. And I think sometimes the false narrative exists out there that Stonewall was started by a bunch of white guys. And that's not the case. Talk about Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. 
Well, I'm so glad you asked because I think especially this year in 2020 with all the conversations that we're having as a country, if there's one thing that I hope readers take away from the book, it's that we borrowed the entirety of pride, everything we celebrate each June and every month of the year. We borrowed pride from the Black Freedom Movement and we have gay rights because of trans women of color, including Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. And most histories focus on their role at the Stonewall riots. But what I wanna make so clear to people is that their importance went so far beyond those four nights at the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village. Um, one thing that, that people have not written about was that Sylvia Rivera, who was a sex worker from the age of 12, uh, slept in and out of homelessness throughout her life, uh, was a trans woman of color. She was the first after Stonewall to get arrested by the gay or by the New York Police Department for uh, soliciting signatures for a gay rights bill uh, organized by the Gay Activist Alliance in 1970 in New York City. Because of her arrest, uh, the Gay Activist Alliance rejuvenated the legal action committee that had previously gone dormant. That legal action committee became Lambda Legal, which mm. was the very first organization to join the marriage fight in Hawaii in 1993. So quite literally, we have the rights that we have. We have the privileges that we have as, as white gay men because of people like Sylvia Rivera, because of Marsha P. Johnson. The, the, the facts are there. You can read the, re the receipts. But what you also have to read are the meeting minutes saying that the Gay Activist Alliance didn't want to participate in Sylvia's own protests against persecution because she was homeless. She was a street person, in their words. Uh, they didn't want to donate to her homeless shelter for queer homeless kids uh, because that just wasn't their purpose. Uh, they removed trans protections from that uh, civil rights bill that the city council was, was uh, uh, considering and that Sylvia Rivera had been arrested for promoting because they thought it would make the bill more palatable to politicians. And the bill still failed. Uh, in the early 2000s, the human rights campaign uh, removed trans protections from its proposed anti-discrimination right. legislation. Um, that bill still failed. Um, and so I think it shows how much we as the white gay community have failed in the past. Uh, and it shows how those with the least to lose, the most marginalized members of our community are the first to fight back and the first to stand up for us, but also the first to be forgotten. So I think now as we're in this new mo moment of uh, uh, activism and of social change, we have to ask, who are we forgetting now? Who have we forgotten in the past? And how do we make our history right and more just? Yeah. I like that. And I, and I'm happy to see some, some articles and some sharing of those stories of those two uh, very brave women. So you obviously learned a lot about Frank Kameny as a young gay man in 2020. What did he teach you? I think he taught me that first, if you know, something is wrong, if you see injustice, you have to speak out, right? You just have to keep fighting. Um, and you see it right now. Uh, even with the Supreme Court decision, uh, we need to be prepared for massive resistance on the part of the federal government, of private employers. Um, and we also have to be aware of the fact that, that heroes like Frank Kameny and even heroes today are forgetting people. We, we're making mistakes. And so even though we need to learn Frank's story, and learn you know, how he was successful and how he was able to actually achieve change. We also have to examine and ask ourselves, you know, why was his organization 100% white, right? Why was his organization you know, preventing people who defied gender norms from demonstrating? Was that actually uh, beneficial? Why was it that his campaign uh, prevented drag queens from appearing at, at, at social events, right? Why, what does that tell us about, you know, who we threw under the bus in the past and whom we now have an obligation towards today? Um, and so 
I think we should be telling these stories, but we also have to be vigilant and and critical, not just of our history, but also of ourselves. Yeah. So as you as you think about the uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision last month on employment, when you woke up that morning and read it, were you surprised? Absolutely. I, I was completely shocked. I did not in, <laughs> in my wildest dreams imagine that Neil Gorsuch would be writing right? a decision that that granted me rights of any kind. Uh, that said, uh, I, I'm optimistic about what it means for our future, but very cautious about the realities and the pragmatic side of things, because just like Brown versus Board, just because there's a Supreme Court decision that supposedly gives us our rights does not mean that anything is actually going to change. If anything, it could show, you know, it could open the door to religious-based persecution. I think we have to be prepared for private employers to continue uh, uh, using supposed religious beliefs uh, to exclude and harm others within our community. Um, our government, I don't believe, is going to flip a switch and become just and rational overnight. Uh, but it also shows us that if we fight, if we use the courts, if we don't give up, if we're creative in our approach, then we can succeed. We can have tangible uh, successes. And so I, I'm so grateful to the attorneys, you know, whether it be the ACLU or Lambda Legal, these incredible activists and attorneys who, who have been fighting and who haven't stopped. And now we need to be asking, okay, how can we now support them? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Frank died in 2011, uh, and he was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Uh, what do you think he would have said about that? I think he would have been in utter glee. Uh, he would have been very thrilled and been the first to remind everyone, including the media, that this was the continuation or the culmination of his battle that he began in 61. He was very protective of his, of his contributions and making clear to everyone that, that he was the first and very deservedly so. Uh, he was the first and he was the first to, to uh, stand up to the Supreme Court and to the federal government and to try to educate uh, the government and the public of the systematic persecution that was uh, so dominant throughout mid-century America and up until today, quite frankly. Uh, and I think he also would say, all right, you know, he would celebrate for 10 minutes, maybe write to the Washington Post, and then he'd say, all right, where's persecution continuing to exist? Where is injustice now? Uh, and I think he would, just as he continued fighting until he died on National Coming Out Day in 2011, uh, he would continue to say, all right, it's now up to us uh, to continue fighting for our community. Yeah. Well, you've had a chance to interview some pretty amazing people on your virtual book tour. I had a chance to uh, look at some of the interviews, and uh, one of those was with Dustin Lance Black, who I just have a great deal of admiration for. Uh, you know, talk about the experience talking with, with these individuals and what you've learned. Well, it was such an honor. Uh, we had a physical book tour planned. We were going to go to six cities, right. coast to coast. And then, of course, after the pandemic struck, uh, we had to scratch that. And I decided, you know what, silver lining is that if I can sit on this desk chair and interview anyone across the country or the world, I'm going to make the most of it. And so I was able to do 18 uh, interviews over the course of something like 10 days uh, with so many incredible artists, politicians, activists, thinkers, and really trying to understand the diversity of our own community and also show how, you know, we need to be having these conversations just because Pride Month is over, just because, you know, the, the most uh, visible displays of resistance uh, have, have ended from the Black Lives Matter movement and, and others. We, we have to continue our self-education. We have to keep asking questions of others and of ourselves of how we can do better. Um, so I really see it as, as just the beginning of uh, my own improvement, my own uh, uh, path in, in fighting white supremacy and fighting racism and in becoming an anti-racist because, again, you can't just flip a switch. You, it's it's a, a, an ongoing process, and I'm so excited to, to share it with people, and I hope people will join. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's all connected, right? I mean, we aren't any, none of us are just one thing. We're not just gay or just white or just black. We are, there's a lot of intersectionality there and you can't talk about one without the other. Uh, what's next for you? Well, I am in Los Angeles and uh, very much went into my career as an academic and studying history with with the ulterior motive of getting Frank Kameny's story, the story of pre-Stonewall homophile activism into the hands of as many people as possible. Um, and I think Hollywood is a very fascinating uh, uh, arena of, that may offer some opportunities to, to continue to share. Mm uh these stories so stay tuned is all i'll say that is intriguing i can't <laughs> wait to see on the big screen uh the deviance war the homosexual versus the united states of america that makes for a great movie title uh where can people go to get the book and where can they go to follow you sure anywhere you can go uh and buy books should have it uh there was a lot of demand so a lot of places are still um back ordered uh, but if you go to my website, it's ericservini.com slash book. Uh, that's T-E-R-V-I-N-I. Uh, then I have links to anywhere you can buy books. But uh, definitely consider shopping local, shopping independent. Perfect. And if you missed those websites, uh, we'll put a couple for the book, as well as Eric's personal website on our own website at outbeatnews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page. We have been talking with Dr. Eric Servini about his book, The Deviant's War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America. It is a fantastic read, whether you're a history buff or not. Um, and I just really appreciate, one, that you wrote the book and did all that research for us, and two, that you shared it with us tonight. Thank you so much and for having me and for uh, uh, sharing your own story also on, on your program. It's, it's such an inspiration. And that wraps up our hour. If you didn't get a chance to get online to take part in our summer fundraiser, the night is still young, so please help us with a tax-deductible donation right now. You can go to norcalpublicmedia.org forward slash donate or simply go to our website at outbeatnews.com and click the link on the center of the page. Tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on Radio 91. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. Podcasts of our programs are available for on-demand play on our website at outbeatnews.com and on iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter for updates from Outbeat Radio News all month long. I'd love to change the world, but I don't know what to do. So I give it up to Broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And you can't find a fighter, but I see it in you, so we can walk it out. Move mountains, we can walk it out and move mountains. On air, online, or on the go, we are Radio 91, KRCB-FM Windsor, and K215-CQ Santa Rosa, a service of Northern California Public Media. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Afropop is next.